Hello, team, and welcome to Bureaucracy. I'm your host, Emily Gross, and we are back today with another episode. We have a very special guest today. His name is Jonathan Carmel. Hi, John. I am. So for the record, I know John previously. Him and I lived together for a year and like a couple months because I was the parasite in his life. And in that, he is marrying my mother. So, <laughs> John, welcome. Welcome to my life. Yep. So uh, John is a, uh, is a lawyer for unions. And so we're going to be talking about all about unions today. And I don't know if people listened to the last episode, but hopefully you did. However, I said I had a cold. That was a lie. That was accidental fake news that I actually had COVID. Um, so I'm still congested. Day nine of being positive, hoping tomorrow is my lucky break. Um, but anyways, here we are. However, because we commit to the show, and yes, we are recording this at about 10 o'clock on your time, 11 a.m. my time, we are still going to be drinking. And because your soon-to-be wife and my mother has given me shit about it uh, for the last couple episodes, John, what are you drinking today? It's Sunday morning in Chicago, so I am drinking uh, or looking at a bottle of Rabbit Hole Kentucky bourbon. Are you just looking at it, just trying to... Yeah, I'm just looking at it, because I got things right. to do today. Yeah. I do but, too, but, but I'm going to be drinking a beer. <laughs> but it has got a label on here that it's the winner of some best of class New York wine and spirits competition. So, oh, you so you're in theme. I'm in theme. Even though you always. hate New York, it's uh, it's nice to see that you found a bourbon. I love New York. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the reason why I have not showed off what beer I've been drinking in the past couple episodes because it's still been Blue Moon because it's all I had in my home. However, I went out and I got a cool thing called Brooklyn Bel Air Sour and it tastes sour like a Sour Patch Kid, but better because it gets you drunk. And so we're going to be drinking this this morning. <laughs> okay. So cheers to me. Um, cheers to you. Why don't you tell everyone about yourself and why you should be able to marry my mother? Convince the folks, okay. John. Okay. Who am I? That's a good question. I've been asking yeah. myself for a long time. <laughs> uh, I have been a union side labor lawyer since 1982. God, way, you're way, old. Way longer than I thought I'd ever do this. And I represent a mostly very large, powerful uh, unions, national unions, including the parent union of the subunion, the RWDSU, that has tried to organize the workers down in Bessemer, uh, Alabama. I have not been involved in that organizing, but among the things I do for my clients around the country is that I uh, we assist them in their organizing efforts, in their litigation before the National Labor Relations Board, and when workers are fired, we represent them uh, to try and get their work their jobs back, and we do negotiations for our clients. So when we they collectively bargain with employers, we are there often at the table. And I've been doing that, like I said, since 1982. Good credentials. I'll allow the marriage in October. Thank you okay, for your service. Um, you. Okay. <laughs> so let's get started. We're going to be talking about unions today. And what's bringing this up is recently, uh, first time ever in the history of Amazon did an Amazon warehouse elect to form a union and successfully so. It makes this very interesting that this is an independent union. So John, why don't we talk a little bit about that and just a little bit about history of unions and what's going on? Well, I think the starting point for discussion of where we're at today, including this amazing victory of this independent union in New York is to look back how we got to where we are. And I think we have to start back during the Depression when workers were rioting and going on strike and courts were getting injunctions and 
and police goons for employers were arresting and shooting and beating workers who were fighting for their rights at work. And in the midst of all this was depression, and they passed part of the New Deal, uh, Congress did, something called the Wagner Act, which was named after Senator Robert Wagner of New York. A great, great, great progressive senator uh, and close ally with Franklin Roosevelt. So what the Wagner Act did for the first time in 1935, it made lawful the right for workers to join a union. Prior to that, workers could be arrested if they tried to join unions. Interesting. And they gave workers the right to strike, and they gave workers the right to collectively bargain with their employer, get a union contract that spells out their terms and conditions of employment. Those were the huge victories, the huge parts of the Wagner Act. And it prevented, this is really too much in the weeds, it prevented employers (laughs) from going into court and getting injunctions and preventing workers from exercising their rights. So it was a huge, huge, huge piece of legislation for workers in America. And it created unfair labor practices, violations of the law, if employers fired employees because they went out on, you know, um, tried to organize a union or wanted a union. And and, and it compelled employers to bargain with employees, and this will play into the Amazon discussion later, bargain with employees and their unions in good faith. So that was great. And between 1935 and for the next 10, almost 11 years, the density of private sector workers, because the Wagner Act only applied to private sector workers, there weren't much public sector workers back in those days, grew enormously. By the mid-1940s, nearly 35% of the private sector workforce were all union, and unions were exerting enormous power in the economy and in the country. And not coincidentally, uh, wages were rising, and workers were making money. And, you know, this is where the great middle class was created. And in 1947, Harry Truman was in his second term as as president. He was a Democrat. And the Democrats lost both houses of Congress. Been there, done that. Right. (laughs) And it might happen again. So what happened in 1947 in the Congress of 1947 is that the Republicans got power and they had been biting at the bit for 10 years to reform the labor law that was the Wagner Act, and they did. They got their chance, and they passed this legislation that was called, they called it reform, and it reformed the Wagner Act by creating what they call the Labor Management Relations Act, or the Taft-Hartley Act. That sounds And it was named after one of the Tafts, you know, and I don't don't remember who Hartley was, but... Probably an old white guy, based on... An old white guy, you know, yeah, so uh, no offense to all the white guys listening. Yeah, sorry, Um, John. (laughs) So what this did was it turned the Wagner Act on its head, and it gave employers the right to oppose unions. Not only the Wagner Act said employees have the right to join unions. Now the new act said employees have the right not to join unions. So that was sort of the predicate of it all. And it gave employers what they call a free speech right, which was to actively oppose unions and actually create sort of this election atmosphere where you've got one side in the unions and one side in the employers, and they're fighting for the vote of the employee. That was never contemplated in the original act. It was if you have a majority of workers who want a union, there was going to be a union. Now we create this whole electoral process, complete with all the lies that we see today in our general electoral process. So workers were being threatened, they were being made promises, told lies about the union, 
all in the name of employer free speech, which was then codified in the law in the court decisions for the last 70 years. So workers today are uh, can be lied at, and which occurred in Amazon, interfered with their right to join unions, and it's all very often perfectly legal. So what happened when the law was passed? Not surprisingly, the ability of unions to organize workers started a decline, along with the changes in the law and other things that happened. Um, we're now down to about, I think it's about 6% of the private workforce is organized. That's it? Uh, that's it. Uh, that's not a lot. It's not a lot. And wages have remained mostly stagnant until recently, and now everyone's complaining about inflation because workers are making too much money. But that really Cannot was the Cannot relate beginning. to that one, but yeah. Right. right. <laughs> and that was really the beginning of the in- income inequality gap. Okay. Because, and that's really what started the consolidation of corporate power was a change in the labor law in 1947. It weakened unions, strengthened corporations. We got income inequality. The gap, income gap was much narrower in 1945. And now it's, it's massive. It's a huge, it's massive. And that, that could all be traced back to the Republican takeover in 1947. So that's that's how we got to where we are today, and that sort of set the groundwork. Let's talk about this recent labor win for the Amazon workers in Staten Island, which is also why I'm drinking my Brooklyn beers, because it's close enough to Staten Island. Fantastic. It's amazing. I wish I was involved in it. Yeah. And so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about it, um, who these workers are, and the fact that it's an independent union and what that means. This is as organic a union as you're going to find. And by that, I mean bottom-up organizations. It's a wonderful thing to see for workers to take on their own cause, to take control of their own lives and at all at stake and organize themselves. Not unlike many organizing campaigns, it started out by workers being treated like crap. They were getting fired. They were getting written up all the time. There was probably a lot of favoritism that you didn't get written up for the same thing that I got written up for. I mean, there was all sorts of things. There was uh, unsafe work conditions, which Mm -hmm. I know a lot about because I'll plug it really quick. I wrote a book called Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. It's available on Amazon. Oh, no, I said that. I shouldn't have said that. Um, you know, workers, you know, get injured and die at work at a much higher rate than we all know about. And workers were getting injured at the uh, warehouse, uh, not surprisingly. So there were all these bad working conditions that drove workers, at least a group of workers, to try and form a union. And their idea was very basic. Let's collectively get together and have the legal right to demand changes in our working conditions, mm-hmm. which is basically all a union is about. This union started because one worker was fired over protesting the poor COVID-19 safety policies and fought it back and basically was able to organize. And they kind of did it themselves. They really kind of feet on the ground, setting up like warm tents and stuff along like this that would make it a real community, you know. And the fact that they were able to do this with any big outsider labor organization is massive. It's it's so freaking cool. So yeah, cool. no, it's... It's beyond cool. It's it's really amazing because this is not some mom and pop operation, and they're not the first ones to 
take a shot at organizing Amazon workers. Some of the largest unions in the country with experienced organizers and huge staffs have fallen flat on their face. It was so organic that that's what drove the organizing and the commitment by these workers. It wasn't a runaway uh, vote. No, they what about by 55%? They got 55%. Yeah, which is, you know, is... Enough. You know, (laughs) is enough. All you need is 51%. The fact that it wasn't a runaway vote could be attributable to a lot of things. But the fact that they took on this huge um, company and won, and in the face of probably a very aggressive anti-union campaign, is just really compelling and amazing. Yeah, and, and for uh, reference, Amazon has already filed an appeal against this union, basically trying so to handle and saying it was tainted, which is some fuck shit. Anyways. Yeah, so I mean, just briefly, what happens? They have a you, you go to a secret ballot election that the National Labor Relations Board holds, and the workers line up, probably in this case, for three days to vote. There's such a huge number of employees, and then they count the ballots. They're just usually paper ballots. Boom, boom, boom. They count them and they put one pile for the union, one pile against. And oftentimes, the losing side will file what they call objections to the election, which I understand that's what Amazon is doing with their million-dollar lawyers. Yeah. And this one will probably go to litigation over whether or not there was conduct that affected the what they call the outcome of the election, so it wasn't a fair election. That'll drag on for some period of time. Uh, could be months and months and months. The fact that this is an independent union versus one of the big ones like the NLRB, what does that mean exactly? just means exactly that. They're not affiliated with any other larger organization. I mean, the, the current structure in unions today in, in the United States are they're really top-down organizations, right. they're, especially the big ones, including the ones I represent. And they've got sort of national leadership and then local leadership, you know, on local levels and sometimes even more microscopic than that on, on town levels, you know, or a single plant may be a single local union. But it's part of a large organization. So it has all the good parts of a large organization, like great resources, and has all some of the bad parts of a large organization, like doesn't move very rapidly, and they don't make decisions so rapidly. And, you know, there's internal fighting sometimes about their goals and agendas and policies. You know, this independent union had one goal, and that was to organize their workplace. So let's talk about why this win was successful, and then also one of the biggest union losses, which was in another Amazon warehouse in Alabama in 2018. And that one, Amazon, I believe, was found to have interfered illegally in the union organizing and practices of trying to vote. So let's kind of dive into what happened in that case, and then why you think that, why there's such a difference in success rate. Well, this this is going to be someone's PhD thesis, I'm (laughs) sure of it, in in industrial labor relations. Um, um, and it should be because it's fascinating. So in Bessemer, Alabama, the uh, RWDSU, that's their initials. They're the Retail Workers Department Store Workers Union. I think I got that right. And they're originally from Manhattan. Their headquarters are in Manhattan, probably not very far from where you're sitting. And they started out years and years ago as being a low, you know, as a basically a Manhattan union that arose out of the garment industry. 
many years ago, and I'm telling you this part of the story because it may have impacted what the workers in Alabama perceived as who their union was. And they represented a lot of famous department store workers in Manhattan, at Macy's, at Bloomingdale's, whatever. But that's where they started. They've now branched out into other industries. And they are also an affiliated part of this larger union called the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is where most of my clients are. So they're New York-based union, and they're part of this larger million-plus union of workers. And they went down to Alabama usually how it happens is workers will solicit or reach out to a union for help. And I understand that's what happened in this case. And they sent organizers down there, and they probably did a very uh, traditional organizing campaign. And again, you know, I don't know, in the postmortem of the 2018 loss or the win in Staten Island, what all the differences are. But I think that's going to be part of it. But an important part of the story is that Alabama, the history of unions, Unions are much less visible and part of the culture in Alabama. New York, on the other hand, especially in Manhattan and boroughs, there's a high union density. Again, it may be reaching close to 40% of the private sector workers in the uh, oh, wow. in the New York area. Big so difference. people, so big difference. So you know when, so when you try and sell the union to somebody in Alabama and they've had no experience, or their family or friends have had no experience with the unions, or have had a bad experience with the unions, that colors their view of why do we need a union? I don't know anything about unions, and all they want is my money. Uh, whereas in New York, people have long history of working in union workplaces, mm-hmm. and they enjoy high union wages. I mean, because. Again, study after study shows that the difference between union co- workers who are organized and represented by union, their wages and benefits are much, 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 much better. And their safety conditions in, at the workplace are much safer and healthier than in non-union settings. So it, I think that had a lot to do with it in Alabama versus uh, Staten Island. Absolutely. Is that there was just a culture that understood unions and what they can bring to them, even a small independent union. Yeah, and Amazon puts a lot, a lot of money into its anti-union objectives. So I think it was something like over like $4 million last year, and they hired anti-union lawyers. But they basically create a sense of confusion, and they are very prominent with the misinformation and how unions will affect them, which is why them winning in Staten Island is so massive, because they were able to bypass this massive conglomerate that aims to halt unions at any given mode and any given time. So it's huge. So part of the, so part of the story and the analysis will be that in Alabama, Amazon committed numerous, numerous, numerous unfair labor practices, at least as, as alleged by the National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency that oversees private sector organizing and So they ordered, because of all the unfair labor practices that were committed by Amazon that affected the fairness of the first election in 2018, the National Labor Relations Board ordered a rerun election, which was just held around the same time, what, a week or two ago? And that one was really much closer than the first election. And that is going to also be, there were challenges on that side by the union that lost, but the number of vote, the differential was enough that it could have affected the outcome, meaning that that if these group of workers were not intimidated into not voting for Amazon, uh, for the union, uh, the union could have won. I guess that's the easy way to yes. explain it. So Amazon that's is big on intimidation, is basically right. what we're saying. <laughs> right. 
and there's also a huge num there's a huge amount of employee turnover at these places right which you know is really creates a problem for unions in terms of organizing workers because you know you agree to sign a card saying I want to be represented by the independent union or the RWDSU and I'll vote for you then you know and then you quit or you get fired, then a new Emily Gross has to step in and I have to then go to her and say, do you want to support us? And it just so when you have this huge employee turnover, it keeps it's just almost impossible to keep up with. So let's talk about the NLRB. Recently, Jennifer Abruzzo, who's the general counsel for the NLRB, tweeted and made a statement that on captive audiences, and captive audiences, John, you probably can do a better explanation, but from my understanding, they are when the anti-union opposition makes people listen to why joining a union is bad. And there are so many rules and regulations of which people can advocate for unions on the workplace ground. And a big thing is captive audiences because it really does allow the union opposition to make their case in a very, very substantial way. So she's calling to say that captive audiences may not necessarily be legal is from what I understood. And could you explain more about what her statement means? So the big struggle, at least traditionally, has been to get in front of workers for unions, tell them what the benefits of unionization are. And they've done that most traditionally through one-on-one -on -one or small groups. And you build your momentum and you get an organizing committee and they then go out and spread the gospel of unions. And, and because it's all about access to workers mm -hmm. and, um, and that, you know, and, and the place where workers are all at is work uh, are, <laughs> is at the workplace Yeah, and employers try and wall off unions from getting access to their work. But for the employer, they have the workers at the workplace captive. They have captive audience hmm. and they can. That feels Say, very hey. synonymous to how I feel about capitalism. So Right. So they <laughs> schedule workers, groups of workers, shifts of workers, and say, uh, you've got to come into the employee break room or conference room, and you're going to listen to our anti-union consultant tell you why you shouldn't vote for the union, and you have to show up. If you don't show up uh, disobeying a work order, you can be disciplined for it. So you have to show up and sit and listen to uh, an anti-union consultant, high-paid anti-union consultant, with all of your management people and, and supervisors standing around and watching you while, while you're listening to this. And they that's where their free speech comes into play. And the free speech will say all sorts of things about lies about unions. You know, if you go on, if you vote for the union, the union will take you out on strike all the time. That's a common refrain we hear. Uh, they'll charge you, well, they tell you they're going to charge you, you know, $10 a week for your union representation. They're going to lie. It's going to be much more than that. And they're spending their money, you know, they just fill their heads with all sorts of lies. And the law on this, you know, the decisional law on this is that eh, it's okay to lie. I mean, that's exactly, you know, what it is. The law in this country is it's okay to lie. You know, it's okay for employers to lie and misrepresent the facts. And, you know, that's kind of the, you know, how we do it in our regular electoral process. So, you know, why is this any different? If liar, liar, pants on fire was real in this country, there'd be no more pants. So Jennifer is saying that, uh, so captive audience has been permitted and they haven't been found illegal, which is just outrageous. And so kudos to her for trying to take this on and changing it. Because different from our regular electoral process, I can turn off the freaking TV 
if I don't want to see or mute it if I don't want to hear someone's ad. But workers are being told they have to be there. They have their supervisors walking around, uh, observing how they're whether they're listening or on their phone, and you know if they're giving the finger to the speaker under the desk or something. You know, I, I mean, this all happens, and so workers like are sitting in this room, dictator, coercive. authoritarian, and bad. it's very coercive and threatening. Yeah. And and then they'll often say in the in the meetings, does anybody have any comments? And nobody, nobody has a comment because they're fucking nobody terrified. Because they're terrified, and or they'll put uh, company sucks up there, and they'll say, "I think you're right. This is great. Anybody who would vote for the union is is a traitor to our organization." Does anybody else have any comments? You know. <laughs> And, and there are often people who have enough courage to go up and say, no, I think unions are great. I think we should all be uh, uh, vote for them. And that person often is fired the next week or the next day or the next hour. That's crazy. Um, so she wants to get rid of the captive audience speech, which would be a huge, huge thing because that will take the employer's lies and misrepresentation out of the equation in a way that's never been done before. It will even the playing field. Right now, there is the playing field is so uneven. We don't really have the access to workers that the employers have. In the workplace, on the production lines, the supervisors are saying, hey, you want that great shift? I want your commitment to not vote for the union. I mean, employers use all sorts of things, illegal. So when I was at the University of Wisconsin, I was trying to pay my drinking habits off, so I worked as a bartender at a brand new fancy hotel. It was just opened up on the Capitol Square in Madison. And so I was the bartender when they opened. I was really good. I actually been a bartender for years since then. I wish I still was one. <laughs> and the hotel workers union came around and they tried organizing. And the manager of the hotel called all of us in one by one to her office and asked us whether we were going to vote for the union or not, which I didn't know at the time, but I know now is the most illegal thing you can do. Yeah because you're not supposed to be able to quiz people and ask them what their preferences are. And when I got in her office, I said, oh, of course I'm going to vote for the union. My father was a union lawyer um, at the time, and uh, I came from a union family, and I said, of course I'm going to vote for the union. Why wouldn't I vote for the union? She said, okay, John, thanks. And, you know, go back to work. Union lost something like 15 to 1, and I was the one, and I got fired. Wow. And... And I remember the end of the story calling my father up and say, oh, I got fired and this is what happened. And he goes, well, you're really dumb, but I'll take I'll take the case on. And then five minutes later, he calls me back because I'm too busy. Get another job. <laughs> but but that's what they do. They, they'll do. They'll call you into their office. And, and, and it happens even though it's it's Not, as illegal yeah. as heck. And they start identifying who are the union uh, supporters and who are not. That is wild. That's insane. Yeah. Also, you've never made me like a drink, John. You have all oh. this bartending experience, and yet, where are we? You're a, a good bartender on your own. You make exotic sweet drinks. Yeah, good bartender on my own, meaning I pour three shots of tequila and down it. Right, yeah. you create your own ratios. Yeah, <laughs> my own ratios designed to get you the most fucked up as possible. Um, bartender of the year. So let's talk a little bit about some of the more recent rulings in the Supreme Court of the United States, which is now is generally a conservative majority and has been made a couple of rulings that are anti-labor, anti-union. Two of those big ones being Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid? Hasid? It can't be Hasid. I think, no, I think so. I is think it like Hasid's? Against the Hasids, that's not real. That's that's no, no, fake no, news. not the Hasid. No, no, of. yeah, I know. No. But Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, and then also Janice versus AF uh, SCME. Asks me. Asks me. Asks me. Asks me. Asks me. 
asks me. American Federation of... Something, something, something. Something, something. Fantastic. We are journalists. <laughs> so why don't you kind of dive into both those and tell us a little about it, and then also other recent attacks on unions and labor relations. So let's talk about Cedar Point case, because this really ties into organizing and the challenges unions have in organizing. So we talked about a minute ago the, the struggles unions have of getting access to employees. You know, you have two places. You can go into the workplace, which is the most efficient way to talk to workers, or organizers actually do what they call home calling. They'll get their addresses somehow, and they'll knock on their doors, in the, you know, dinner time and say, can I talk to you? And they get door slammed in their faces all the time and leave us alone, or they don't. So access has been a legal flashpoint for as long as I've been practicing and even before that. The ability of unions to get access to an employer's private property. And the law generally is with private property is that the owner of the private property gets to control who can come on and who can't come on. And if you can't come on, you're not allowed to. It's called trespass. So all these trespass cases, you know, simple trespass cases have made their way many years ago into the Supreme Court over the rights of union organizers to access private property rights of employers. So Cedar Point involved another access case, and this was in the agricultural setting in California. So they have this great state law. The law basically allowed, in California, the state law allowed union organizers to come onto the property of agricultural uh, workplaces. So this one employer said enough is enough, and they went into court and they got an injunction against the union and went all the way up into the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which said that the law was constitutional and the union had the right to access the private property of the employer. And the constitutional issue had to do with the Fifth Amendment prohibition, taking property of a citizen mm. without just compensation. Yes, because and that has definitely remembered what the Fifth Amendment was. So this employer in Cedar Point and their million dollar lawyers came up with a different uh, take on this, uh, no pun intended. They said, just the fact that a union organizer comes into my property without compensation is a taking that violates the Fifth Amendment, and therefore the state law, which permits them to do that, violates the Fifth Amendment. So it made its way to the Supreme Court, and lo and behold, in a 6-3 decision, the majority ruled against the union and found that the law violated the Fifth Amendment. And so uh, union activists were not allowed to go onto company onto property? The property. Okay. Right. And the law in California was found unconstitutional. Gotcha. And Justice Breyer uh, wrote a dissent, a brilliant dissent, in my opinion, that said, well, this is complete BS. This you know, Fifth Amendment was never intended to regulate this kind of conduct. And this isn't even a taking. This is not the taking that the Fifth Amendment contemplates. But the six justices, and we don't need to name who they are, thought much differently. Again, points to the struggles that even today unions are having in terms of getting in front of workers uh, and being able to organize. In Janus versus uh, AFSCME, that, this case came out of Illinois. Hmm. And it's a public sector case, you know, employees who work for government uh, entities, again, whether it's on the local level, police officers or federal level, park rangers, you know, these are all public employees. And these public employees in Janus believe they were Illinois you know, clerks, you know, worked in the government of Illinois somehow, and they were represented by AFSCME. And public sector employees are treated differently than private sector employees because private sector employees, again, don't have the same constitutional rights that public sector employees do, at least in the workplace. And one of the pub rights that public sector employees have in the workplace is the First Amendment free speech right. 
This had to do with the union, AFSCME, being able to charge non-members of the union dues in exchange for the benefits they receive from the union. You know, their great wages, their great benefits, their uh, job protection, their job security, their health and safety, all these benefits that the union brought and organized and negotiated for them, even though they weren't in the union, weren't a member, they still had to pay dues in exchange for the benefits of the union obtaining these. And that has been the law. 45 years ago, a teacher in Detroit challenged this law, and the Supreme Court in that case, 45 years ago, said, no, this was not a First Amendment violation, didn't impact your free speech. For 45 years, the law had been that it's not an infringement on employees' uh, First Amendment rights if they have to pay dues for the union to collectively bargain their wages and benefits, that that was a fair exchange, and employees who don't want to pay that but get all the benefits, they're commonly known as free riders, mm -hmm. you know. They don't want to pay. They want the ride without paying the fare. But it was the law on the land for 45 years. Uh, numerous Supreme Court cases tried to challenge that, and they were all rejected, more or less. And along came Janus and a new conservative majority who are generally supposed to respect prior Supreme Court precedent, especially one that was so well established. And Janus comes along with a new conservative majority, and they had no problem whatsoever in finding that public sector unions who charge non-members for the benefits of unionization, that it violates their free speech rights, and it's unconstitutional. That's the Janus case. And, and that, that happened that really in 2018, and that was a massive, massive blow to union power. To public sector unions. Was that only public sector uh, unions that it affected? Yeah, so Janus only affected public sector unions. The lawyers behind the Janus case, which was something called the National Right to Work Committee, which is a dark money organization created and funded by, we've been trying to find out who funds it for years, and it just is, sole mission is to destroy unions. And uh, they're very effective at what they do from time to time, and I've done battle with them many times. Anyway, so these organizations, uh, their goal is, one of their goals, their main goal, is to squeeze the economic ability of unions to, to survive. If you cut off their dues, like any organization that has large staffs, they have to shrivel up and die. And that's the whole idea behind this, that they could care less about the rights, First Amendment rights of workers. On the private sector side, and this is really important, again, to understanding the, the war that's being waged against unions, is you've probably heard about what they call right-to-work laws. And these are laws that states can enact that prevent private sector unions from requiring workers who they've organized to pay dues in exchange for their benefits of unionization. And currently now there are 26 states that are right to work. So right to work states means private sector employees who are not part of the union do not have to pay dues. Right. Okay. Right. But they would get but all they still the, get benefits. the benefits. Right. And correct me if I'm and wrong, but frequently people who are not part of the union, um, they do pay dues, but it is a lesser amount than people who are part of the union. That's a different, that's now a different, it's all related to the same thing, which is to dry up the union's financial financial resources, and so they would show up and die and go away. Uh, so that's a slightly different one, and that also went to the Supreme Court, and that had to do with, in non-right-to-work states like Illinois or California, New York, where a worker can say, I don't want to pay for the union's political activities, for example. You know, unions you know, have First Amendment rights to go out and advocate for 
candidates, politicians, ballot initiatives that support workers, right? So those are called political activities. Again, they become First Amendment free speech issues. Non-right-to-work states, workers can say, I don't want to pay 100% of that because some percentage of the union dues goes to your political activity. But again, everything is designed and mostly by this National Right to Work Foundation and their dark money supporters to dry up um, the ability of unions to financially exist. Poop. And if they don't exist, then workers don't have any representation rights and it's Katie by the door. Well, that's not cool. Where do you foresee the union fight and uh, labor relations going in the future? It's so unpredictable because in the many years I've been doing this, the labor laws in this country go back and forth with who's ever in the White House. Because the White House gets to appoint members of the National Labor Relations Board, which are five persons. And at generally a 3-2 majority, these board members are essentially the judicial arm of the National Labor Relations Board. They are the ones who will decide. They are the adjudicative body that will decide what the labor laws are in this country. Their decisions can then be appealed up as high as the Supreme Court, and they often are. But but they're the first line. They set the, the labor laws. And every four years or every eight years, um, or whoever's in power, the president gets to appoint his or her board members, only his so far. And that creates this back and forth in the labor laws. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an occurring right now in a positive way. Yeah. Because we've got a Democratic majority and a Democratic general counsel who's Jennifer Bruzzo. So when you ask what the future of it is, it's like no it's freaking like a tennis idea. match. Yeah. We have no idea. I have no other questions. Okay. Anything else you would like to say? No, we're just a world of shit right now. <laughs> I can't stand it. Are you sure you don't want to start drinking that I bourbon t- you have next to? I might, I might. John, thank you so much for being my guest today. I am your host, Emily Gross. This has been a great episode of Bureaucracy, and we'll be back next week.